Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 33, The Lion's Brood. When we last left off the narrative, Hamilcar Barca, hero of the First Punic War, had led his intrepid army deep into Spain in order to recoup Carthage's losses in Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica. Although he told Roman envoys that this Spanish excursion was merely done to pay off Carthage's war indemnity, the idea had probably already occurred to him that Spain, with its rich resources in metals and men, could provide an ideal base for a future war with Rome. However, that was all to come in the future. For now, Hamilcar had to consolidate his gains in Spain with the aid of his son-in-law, Hasdrubal, and his sons, among whom was the teenage Hannibal. Raised to be soldiers under the stern eye of their warlike father, the latter were collectively known as the Lion's Brood. Unfortunately, in 228 BC, disaster struck. Hamilcar marched deep into Spanish territory to the north of his base at Acreluca, mopping up fortified cities and hill forts as he went until he reached the small town of Heliki. With winter setting in, Hamilcar dispatched the bulk of his army and his corps of elephants back to Acreluca in order to avoid stretching his supply lines, reserving what he thought was a sufficient force to continue the siege. Diodorus recounts that a king of the Orisi, thought to be the Oritani, then appeared with his own army, perhaps according to a previous arrangement, and, feigning friendship with Hamilcar, the king offered to aid the Carthaginians against the beleaguered Heliki. Hamilcar took the king at his word, which sealed his fate. In a sudden attack upon the unsuspecting Carthaginians, the treacherous Spanish king routed Hamilcar's forces and sent the general reeling southwards with his sons. With the Spanish cavalry in hot pursuit, Hamilcar sent his sons under guard one direction and led the Spaniards another in an attempt to draw off the pursuers. When his way was suddenly barred by a swollen river, Hamilcar plunged himself and his horse into the raging torrent, never to be seen again. The sudden and violent end of Hamilcar Barca sent shockwaves through the Carthaginian world. Without warning, the man who had dominated their political scene since the end of the Truceless War had vanished. As a general, he had fought valiantly, if fruitlessly, against the Romans in the final days of the First Punic War, stomped out the mercenaries' revolt, and then conquered large swaths of Spain for the Carthaginian state. As a statesman, he and his adherents had passed numerous reforms increasing the power of the common citizens of Carthage at the expense of the elite. His Spanish conquests had revitalized Carthage's crushed economy and opened up the Iberian Peninsula to new ventures by intrepid merchants and colonists. Before Hamilcar came to power, Carthage had been crushed by her defeat in war, the revolt of her mercenaries, and the heavy war indemnity owed to Rome. By the time of his death, she ruled over a burgeoning empire which promised to eclipse her former one in terms of military power and material wealth, thanks in large part to Hamilcar's personal charisma and undaunted leadership. 
Yet he was a hard man, born in a hard time. The harsh lessons of the truceless war remained with him, and he did not hesitate to employ ruthless and brutal measures when he deemed the situation called for it. His military record was not flawless either, and he could be guilty of lapses of judgment in the field, which in the end would prove fatal to his own life. Ancient authors give him various epithets and eulogies, from the open admiration of Polybius to the grudging acknowledgement by Livy of his drive to rebuild Carthage's fortunes in anticipation of future struggles with Rome, to the acrid hostility of other pro-Roman authors who blamed him and his protégés as being the progenitors of the Second Punic War. Whatever his virtues and faults, Hamilcar Barca came at a time when his country needed him most. As the historian Dexter Hoyos puts it, in Hamilcar, the Carthaginians found the right man for their times. He gave them both leadership and vision. Within ten years after the two most draining wars in their history, they had returned to wealth, prestige, and power, traveling an expansionist path very different from Carthage's old island-bound and trade-based hegemony, and on par militarily and territorially with the other great Mediterranean powers. For all this, Hamilcar's most enduring achievement would be the army he would bequeath to his heirs. Indeed, it was from his father that Hannibal received not only his greatest lessons, but his greatest tool, a professional mercenary army forged in battle, which he would use to launch his quest against Rome. If Hamilcar's rival, Hanno the Great, hoped to seize back control of the state following his great antagonist's death, he was to be sorely disappointed. Instead, the army in Spain, meaning most likely the Carthaginian officers as opposed to the other varied ethnic contingents, acclaimed Hamilcar's son-in-law, Hasdrubal the Fair, to succeed Hamilcar in command. When this nomination reached the Carthaginian Senate for ratification, Hanno the Great's protests that this would create a de facto family monarchy went unheeded. The army had spoken, and the pro-barked senators and the populace had no compunctions in keeping Spain within the Barked family, so long as the riches and the victories kept coming. So has Drubal succeeded the great Hamilcar. Although it might be tempting to view him as merely a stopgap between the two more famous Barkids, this would be a critical mistake. Hasdrubal, known as the Fair due to his handsome appearance, proved to be an effective and charismatic leader in his own right. Less bellicose than Hamilcar, Hasdrubal preferred diplomacy and treaties over brute strength. Although when the time came for force, he showed himself more than willing to use the army Hamilcar had left him. In fact, he improved upon Hamilcar's model growing the army to 60,000 infantry and 8,000 cavalry, along with a 200-strong elephant force, the largest elephant corps on record from antiquity. His first act as Strategos Autocrator, or Supreme General, of Spain, consisted of punishing the Oritanians who had ambushed and killed Hamilcar. Unleashing his formidable fighting force on the Oritanians, Hasdrubal, in the words of Diodorus, killed all who had been responsible for Hamilcar's rout, and acquired their twelve cities. 
The 18-year-old Hannibal had been promoted to a cavalry commander and soon distinguished himself under arms, to the point that Appian claims that, where force was needed, Hasdrubal made use of the young man. In addition to avenging Hamilcar, Hasdrubal consolidated Hamilcar's gains by a series of patchwork alliances, treaties, and subjugations. He married an Iberian princess to strengthen ties with the local ruling aristocracy and established a series of guest friendships, equivalent to personal alliances based on mutual respect and hospitality, with Iberian and Celtiberian nobles. Using these methods, along with the occasional military campaign, Hasdrubal extended Carthage's influence to the point that it encompassed the land stretching from Gades in the southwest, near Gibraltar, to New Carthage, modern-day Cartagena, in the east, and the Tagus Valley, in central Spain, to the north. Carthage's control over these regions could be more or less direct, depending on the legal status of the tribes and cities within them, allies, tributaries, or subjects, but during these formative years, Carthage's overall hegemony remained unquestioned and unchallenged by any outside power. As part of his efforts to consolidate the gains in Spain, Hasdrubal founded a new capital city, Cartadast, which has been romanized into Carthago Nova, or New Carthage, on the western coast of Spain. Now known as Cartagena, Polybius gives the site a glowing description in his histories. At the mouth of the harbor lies an island which leaves only a narrow passage on either side, and as this breaks the waves of the sea, the whole gulf is perfectly calm, except that the southwest wind sometimes blows in through both channels and raises some sea. No other wind, however, disturbs it as it is quite landlocked. In the innermost nook of the gulf, a hill in the form of a peninsula juts out, and on this stands the city, surrounded by the sea on the east and the south, and on the west by a lagoon which extends so far to the north that the remaining space, reaching as far as the sea on the other side and connecting the sea with the mainland, is not more than a quarter mile in breadth. The town itself is low in the center, and on its southern side the approach to it from the sea is level. On the other sides it is surrounded by hills, two of them lofty and rugged, and the other three, though much lower, are yet craggy and difficult to access. An artificial lagoon has been opened between the lagoon and the neighboring sea for the convenience of shipping, and over the channel thus cut through the tongue of land that separates lagoon and sea, a bridge has been built for the passage of beasts of burden and carts bringing in supplies from the country. With its sheltered harbor and supreme natural defenses, New Carthage had the potential to be a city worthy of a king. Polybius himself darkly hints that Hasdrubal's aim in building such a magnificent capital was a grasp for royal power, and the hostile Fabius Pictor overtly accuses Hasdrubal of founding the city to rival Carthage. Modern scholars differ on Hasdrubal's intentions whether he meant to establish a realm which in practice, if not in theory, was virtually independent of the mother city, or whether he was merely continuing the goal of securing a rich and vital new province to replace Carthage's losses in the First Punic War. Hostile Roman sources tend to accuse him of the former, 
and unfortunately, without any Carthaginian sources to check against, the waters are fatally muddied. Either way, Hasdrubal, situated in his new provincial capital on the southeastern coast, could now control both Spain and North Africa. Local garrisons throughout Spanish territory secured the steady stream of silver, gold, and other precious metals, which continuously flowed into his city, bringing with it an economic boom which soon made it one of the chief cities of the Carthaginian Empire, despite its recent founding. Bustling trade conducted by Carthaginian merchants funneled pottery, dyes, cloth, and foodstuffs through New Carthage's sheltered harbor to flow into the interior, while metals, skins, livestock, and other raw materials streamed out. As his capital grew, so did Hasdrubal's wealth and prestige, to the point that when the Romans, alerted to his successes by their allies in Massilia and Saguntum, decided to send a delegation to inquire, they dispatched it not to the Senate at Carthage, but directly to Hasdrubal himself. Preoccupied with her own troubles with the Gauls of northern Italy and the Illyrians across the Adriatic, the Romans had paid scant attention to Barcid ambitions in Spain during the years intervening between the First Punic War and Hamilcar's death in 228 BC. Cassius Dio alone mentions that the Romans possibly sent an envoy to Hamilcar in 331 BC to investigate his doings on the peninsula, to which, as I mentioned before, Hamilcar replied that he was trying to gather money to pay Carthage's war debts. However, with a massive Gallic invasion looming to the north in 225 BC, Rome suddenly became keenly aware that she needed assurances from Carthage that the recently acquired Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica would remain unmolested to the Romans' flank while they dealt with the Gallic menace. In a sign of growing apprehension, the Senate dispatched the consul Gaius Attilius Regulus with two legions to safeguard Sardinia as the delegation to Hasdrubal simultaneously made its way to Spain. If Carthage meditated a rear attack, Rome would not be caught napping. Upon arriving in Spain, however, the Romans were pleasantly surprised to find that the charming Hasdrubal was more than accommodating. He, in turn, was likely pleased by the Romans' eagerness to strike an agreement with him personally, and Polybius reports that the two parties readily agreed that the Carthaginians would not cross the river Ebro in arms. Since the Ebro sat approximately 200 miles from New Carthage, the treaty implicitly authorized Hasdrubal to campaign in the rest of Spain to his heart's content. Although Livy and later pro-Roman authors would attempt to insert other terms into the treaty, this single promise is all that Polybius records, rendering it likely that it was the only one made. With the agreement in hand, the Romans authorized Gaius Attilius Regulus to withdraw from Sardinia just in time for him to intervene in the decisive Battle of Telamon against the Gauls. We will cover Rome's activities during this interwar period in a future episode. With the striking of the Ebro Treaty, Hasdrubal had reached the apex of his fortunes. Whether or not he aspired to a Hellenistic-style monarchy, he wielded power which any of the Diadochi might have envied. Governing from his prosperous capital of New Carthage, 
bolstered by a revamped and veteran army led by his gifted brother-in-law, and secured by an intricate network of personal and political alliances with the Iberian and Phoenician elite, Hasdrubal must have felt nearly invincible in his Spanish domain. Yet fate had other plans. In the autumn of 221 BC, Hasdrubal executed a Celtiberian chieftain for some unknown offense. In retaliation, one of the man's followers broke into Hasdrubal's quarters at night and murdered Carthage's first man. He had ruled Spain for eight years, during which he had improved and secured Hamilcar's initial gains to the point that, at the time of his death, Carthage roughly controlled 90,000 square miles of Iberian territory, an area which dwarfed Carthage's African holdings back home. As he does for Hamilcar, the historian Dexter Hoyos sums up Hasdrubal's achievements succinctly. The Carthaginian state and empire that Hasdrubal left behind was at least as strong and rich as it had been in 264 BC, in some ways stronger and richer. At home, Punic territory had been enlarged, and relations with Numidian princes seemed to have been more peaceable than for a long while past. Overseas, for the first time in the Republic's history, it controlled sizable continental territories, whose tribute and trade very likely outclassed the returns garnered before 264 from Punic trading stations and island possessions. The still uncertain Punic predominance over southern Spain in 229 had been firmly established by 221, while trade with other lands no doubt continued as before, including Italy and Sicily, and probably even Africa's Atlantic coastlands. Finally, the Republic had large, highly trained armed forces, whose use of cavalry and the resulting mobility, tactical and strategic, were superior to virtually any other Mediterranean military establishment. A corps of officers who, as the future would show, were probably the ablest of any army of that age, and leadership of the same order. In sum, what Hamilcar had aimed at, Hasdrubal achieved. Following Hamilcar's and Hasdrubal's work, Carthage had returned to the stage as a world power. No longer would Rome or any other state infringe her sovereignty with impunity. As Hamilcar had done before him, Hasdrubal bequeathed a military and economic machine which was primed and ready to go. In the hands of the now 26-year-old Hannibal Barca, it would prove to be a force which threatened to bring even the doughty Romans to their knees. Next time, we will pick up with Hannibal's rapid campaigns to bring Carthage's border to the river Ebro and his faithful decision afterwards. Until then, take care and read more history. <laughs>